Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. There's no real set for being an astronaut. There's no, we'll do this, this, and then you'll be an astronaut. Each case is different. And so the way I thought about it was, well, what if I can't become an astronaut? What if for whatever reason they won't let me and they keep telling me no? What would I want to do if I couldn't? And so I tried to make uh, decisions based on that. I learned to fly airplanes, I learned to scuba dive. I was doing things that I was interested in that I thought would help me in my application. You don't know if it's gonna work out. You could just keep getting told no. And so I think it's important to enjoy the journey because you don't know what the outcome's gonna be. You applied for NASA many times. All Overall, how many times did you apply to be an astronaut? Four times. Four times. And after one of those times, you said, okay, I'm gonna start looking at other alternatives. And you went to get a PhD at MIT in robotics. So that right there was a lesson. We got rejected, 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 but you still figure out ways to kind of pursue your dreams. Even if it's not the exact outcome you wanted, the process was still happening for you. Yeah, no uh, control over the outcome, but I certainly had control over whether or not I could keep trying. And as long as I kept trying, I felt like there was still a chance. So Mike Massimino, did I get this pronunciation right? And I know on our podcast, I started off saying it wrong. So Mike Massimino is the astronaut that fixed the Hubble Space Telescope many years ago. That's why you see all those beautiful images now coming from space. It's all because of this man. He's been up in space a couple of times. Story's incredible. And you're also open to ask questions towards the end of that. So without further ado, I'm going to bring Mike Massimino to the stage. Uh, welcome. <laughs> Now I pronounce it wrong? <laughs> we can't pronounce each other's names. So come on up. So first off, I encourage everybody, this is an excellent book, Spaceman, an Astronaut's Unlikely Journey to Unlock the Secrets of the Universe by Mike. And came out of paperbacks, coming out all over the world. It's a New York Times bestseller. Great book. Mike, welcome to the show once again. Thank you, James. Now, 
I was telling Mike this earlier, but a lot of times, uh, some of you have listened to my podcast before. A lot of times after my podcast, I immediately forget everything that was discussed. I don't know why. I feel like... That doesn't sound like a good trait for an interviewer, though. <laughs> well, as long as I don't forget before. <laughs> but, but afterwards, I feel like it like flushes from short-term memory and I'm getting ready for the next podcast. And I know it doesn't have the time to absorb into the long-term memory. But there were several things about our podcast that I want to ask you about that did get into long-term memory. And I've used you as an example so many times, it's ridiculous. But Good or bad? Good. There goes be bad stuff that stays in your mind, too. That might be the reason. No, no, all, all good. So I'll, I'll just tell this one story, and then we can elaborate on a, on a bunch of stories. But you, and, and we'll elaborate on this further down the road, but... You applied for NASA many times. All, overall, how many times did you apply to be an astronaut? Uh, four times. Four times. And after one of those times, I, I, I think it was, you, you said, okay, I'm just, I'm going to start looking at other alternatives. And you, and you went to get a PhD at MIT in robotics. And specifically, if I remember correctly, robotics as pertains to robots on Mars. Uh, I think you got the wrong guy. No, Dude, no. no, I'm not fine. I'm fine. I'm just kidding. Around. Then I no, no, really no. I, no, I uh, what it was is I went to. I wanted to become an. I decided after after college that I, I was. A, if you look at the book, it's got a picture of me as a little kid, and then a picture of me as a grown up little kid dressed up like an astronaut, and then big kid as a as a real astronaut. So as a little kid, I wanted to do it, but didn't think it was possible. And it wasn't until I was after at a, after college I decided I wanted to try to pursue it. So I went to MIT at that point. And uh, was studying robotics in space. You know, different ways you, people can control robots in space. And uh, well, while I was getting my degrees, when I first applied and got rejected, and then a couple of years later, NASA announced they were looking for astronauts again, and I applied a second time and got rejected. Then I graduated from MIT and went to work at the Johnson Space Center and NASA again. So they make these announcements every couple of years they're looking for astronauts. So I applied a third time. That time I got an interview, and they got to know me real well, and then they rejected me. Uh, actually, actually I, was, I was medically disqualified the third time. I, I, so we're we're going to get to that. I had, a med, I had a medical issue that I had to overcome and to be even qualified again. And so I did that and applied a fourth time, and, and then I got picked on the fourth try. So, so but you went back for the, the PhD during this period? Oh, uh, yeah. That kind of started off the journey. Yeah, before I applied, I went back to grad school. So, so, so that right there was a lesson, which is that you have... A childhood dream, of course. You're dressed as an astronaut as a child, but and you you got rejected, rejected, rejected. But you still figure out ways to kind of pursue your dreams, even if it's not the exact outcome you wanted. The the process was still happening for you. Yeah, I think that's interesting. For those, it was about a ten year span, I, I would say. Uh, I, I guess I started thinking about it seriously, something I want to pursue. Maybe 1985, and then I got picked in '96. So that's 11 years or '86. I you know after you. I went to MIT, but there was that, that journey began for me probably, I would say, in the summer of 85, after year after college. And what was interesting about it is I felt like the things I was, I was doing to try to pursue the, the astronaut dream weren't bad things for me to be doing. I mean, it was getting more education. It was getting experience in, the, in working in a space program. And uh, it was a great opportunity to go to graduate school, particularly at MIT. And I had really interesting summer uh, positions. And I and I felt that, you know, all right, it's not the worst. I, I, I learned to fly airplanes. I learned to scuba dive. I was doing things that I was interested in that I thought would help me in my application, but at the same point um, was, in general, good things for me to do. And that, 
It's it because you know you don't know if it's going to work out, right? When you when you're doing this, you could just keep getting told no, and so I think it's important to enjoy what you're doing as you're as you're going along the way. You got to enjoy the journey because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I think that's really important because I'm sure when you got rejected the first time or the second time, you know, you were probably stressed and anxious about it. You were like, "Ugh, I'm I'm disappointed. I'm sad." It's, it, there's two ways to deal with it when you get that kind of level of anxiety or stress or disappointment. One is to give up because then you've just completely relieved yourself of the responsibility of, of achieving this goal. And the other is to push forward. There's really only those two choices. And I think in many cases, I don't want to say in most because I don't know, but in many cases, people just give up because it's so hard yeah. to be accepted to NASA. You know, what yeah, the it, odds? Is, it is. You know, you say, and, you're, and you're trying to, you know, and I find this even today. I mean, it doesn't, it, it, it really is nothing, it's really nothing different about doing that or anything else in life, I think, sometimes. When you try and do something that's a little unusual or it's just, or something you're not used to or a whole new area, you're trying to figure it out. How, how does this all work? And I think frustrating or was, was, is a good word to use because I wasn't, I wasn't sure exactly what to, what to do here, right? I didn't know, you know, and you get told no and you're like, well, okay, but... But there's no real set for, for being an astronaut. There was there's no we'll do this this and then you'll be an astronaut. It's each case is different, and so in some ways that's frustrating. But in other ways, it's kind of uh, it's kind of a good thing I think because the the right answer to try to do something like that is just to do what you like doing. And I I had to think about the problem, or the the path was uh, the way I thought about it was well what if I can't become an astronaut? What if for whatever reason they won't let me and they keep telling me no? Um, what would I what would I want to do if I couldn't and so I tried to make uh, decisions based on that this isn't gonna you know if, if this doesn't lead to astronaut do I still want to do it and as long as the answer is yes and it could also lead to astronaut I think that was a good a good path to take but doing yeah. things just to become an astronaut probably wouldn't have been a good way to go right so I don't think that works it's sort of like you figured out okay I can do a b c d e f where f might be I still might end up an astronaut, right. but A B C D E is all still related to how this childhood dream has grown up, and I could still pursue these things. Yeah, and I think so many people like you, you like you mentioned this could happen in any area of life, but think of like entrepreneurship. There's no there's no set standard rules where somebody has a successful business and you know becomes wealthy, or being a writer. There's no standard set of rules where your book gets published and becomes uh, a bestseller. I think this happens in every area of life. And I think the natural response when you fail several times or get rejected several times is to is to give up rather than explore other ways to attack the problem. Yeah, and what you said was you're given that choice between sometimes between giving up or continuing. And for that dream, for a life's dream, and for this was for me, it really was a little boy dream. Um, as long as the dream was, I, I had control over that, right? I had control over whether I was going to give up or not. Right, and so you, didn't have, you didn't have control over whether NASA was going to I had no uh, control over the outcome, but I certainly had control over whether or not I could keep trying. And as long as I kept trying, I felt like there was still a chance. And when I speak at, at, at schools, I, I say this to, to kids especially, is that when you're trying to do something, it might seem impossible, but it really, it really isn't. It's just unlikely. You know, the probability might be really low, like very close to zero, but it's not zero. There's it's a there's a finite it might be points it might be one out of a million point zero 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 a lot of zeros and a one but that's not zero that's non-zero and the only way it becomes non-zero is if you give up 
Once you give up, it's over. And so the thought of giving up was was not really a choice. It was uh, it was not something I was going to do. But one of those things that so you took flying lessons, as you mentioned, you did all these things that you felt would move you, you enjoyed, and would potentially move you closer to the the outcome you wanted. And one of those things, again, is you pursued a, a PhD in robotics. And there's one thing you said that I thought was very interesting, which is that you had you took one class where there were 10 people in the classroom and uh, four of those 10 ended up in outer space. In the class I was in? Yeah. That was actually my lab. Okay. It was, yeah, and it was... So, yeah, if you took... I don't know if we were all in the same class together, but certainly... In my, lab, in my small lab, there were three of us, and then there was another guy. The fourth guy, uh, Greg Shamatov, was in another lab, but we were all friends and at school at the same time. So, yeah, it was, that's pretty, I guess that's pretty amazing. Yeah, just a few, a small group of us, a bunch of us made it. The other students were international students, so they couldn't become NASA astronauts. They had to go apply to their own country if they wanted to. So Did I don't think they even wanted to. Uh, so, become astronauts. But that, that stuck with me. I mentioned to you before we got up here that I didn't review our older podcast to prepare mm -hmm. for this. I just wanted to focus on the things that, that really stood out for me. Mm -hmm. That one stood out for me because it really is true you're the average of the five people you spend time with. Like if you had, yeah. just, if you had just given up on uh, becoming an astronaut and you were like in some bar, you wouldn't have been able to say, Huh, four of the people in this bar are probably gonna end up in outer space. Yeah. But because you were studying specifically in this, you know, robotics on other planets at MIT, you put yourself in environments yeah. where people were likely to have successful outcomes. Yeah, I I, I believe that's a very good point because I, I believe I believe in that. I believe that if you wanna if there's certain things you wanna do with your life, you need to surround yourself with people who have that same interest. You need to be part of that community. It helps. Um, to be there if you, to do it to do it Lone Ranger is not as easy but I think for whatever that means uh, you know I, if you want to become an actor or an actress uh, probably going to Hollywood might not be a bad idea or maybe New York City if you want to be a stage person I, I you know that I don't know too much about but that's it seems to me that's the kind of thinking if you want to you want to go to a place where there's people who have those so same interests and and there's a synergy involved there with what happened with my friends at MIT a lot of them want and MIT's had a lot of people go on to be astronauts and uh, I think the most of any private or non-military academy. I think, you know, the, I, I think the Naval Academy is number one, and MIT might be number two total. But um, but what happened in the in the, the case you were talking about my lab mates, particularly with two of those guys, um, when I had failed my qualifying exam at MIT, they helped me study. You know, they would pepper me with questions, and we practice the exam. We had an oral component to the exam, so two of those guys helped me get through MIT very directly. And then I got to be an astronaut before they did, and I got to write letters for both of those guys. I was, I was a reference. Were they, for those were guys they jealous? They were like, we helped him on his exam. What, no, they what were the like, heck? They were like, you got in there, you got to help us get in, is get into to, uh, so to NASA. So I was very glad to write them uh, and, and talk them up to help them get selected. And they both got selected, both of these guys, Nick Patrick and Greg Shamath. We gloss over the fact that you failed your exams at MIT. You failed. Yeah, that was another issue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I failed my uh, my qual. Yeah, I go through this qualifying exam to get the a PhD there at, at school, and uh, uh, and uh, I, I yeah I failed that pretty miserably. I was I, I got a second chance at it though. So so I um, probably only just a few years afterwards I failed my qualifying exams at Carnegie Mellon. Congratulations! And I I was we have that in common. And I gave up. I you I did. Left. Yeah yeah I left. Ooh, that's not. <laughs> and look how it turned out for you. I know. Here's... Maybe it's better to give up. <laughs> 
You're the guy, I, you know. You I don't know about well. that. I don't know about that. I don't know. You just countered everything I've been talking about so far. But, but then you continue this idea of you're the average of the five people you spend your time with. You didn't, you not only went to the school with all the potential future astronauts, you then picked up and moved to the suburb of Houston where all the astronauts lived. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was the other thing is, again, if you, uh, the place to go when I, you know, and I thought about, I didn't really think about this too deeply, uh, but the obvious, the obvious, because the obvious, to me, there was an obvious answer that if you want to be an astronaut, you should go down to Houston, Texas at the Johnson Space Center. So you don't have to do that, but. Did you have a job lined up? Well, I apply, you know, I sent out, you know, I was, this is when I was graduating, and so I sent out uh, applications when my last year in grad school, and, and that one came through. And, and so you moved down to Houston. Yep. Did, did you pick on purpose the suburb where you knew most of the astronauts lived? No, I was looking for a house I could afford. And uh, that one, that it just, but every, they were all over the place down there. There's astronauts and all. It's not like there's an astronaut neighborhood. They're scattered. <laughs> they're scattered astronaut all over Bill. the place. Yeah. They did back, you know, back in the old days, though, it was more like that because there wasn't that many neighborhoods down there in, in when they first built the space center. And so some of the older neighborhoods, like there's one neighborhood there that the, uh, the, the, the uh, Timber Cove is the name of it. And I think a lot of the original astronauts bought homes there. And, and the pool, and the, the community pool that they have, because in Texas there's community pools in each little subdivision neighborhood they have, is in the shape of a Gemini capsule. <laughs> Space Coast has got that shape to it. So It's a little phallic yeah. for a pool. Uh, <laughs> well, not the rocket ship. The capsule's oh, kind of okay. pudgy. All right. Yeah, yeah. More like a Hershey's Kiss. So, all right, yeah, all right. Yeah. So, so, so you move down there, and then you apply again, and you have this physical problem. And mm -hmm. so, so, so... I mean, syphilis will normally keep people out of NASA. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. That's maybe why you couldn't become an astronaut. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. All right, good, good one. Never mind quitting Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. So, so what was the what was the physical issue? It was uh, my eyesight, and uh, back back in those days, this is 21 years ago, and things like uh, things like LASIK and uh, some of the other procedures we have now to, to improve vision were not accepted. Now they are. Um, and the, the, the requirements for vision have changed, all, I, I think, all across the board, including military pilot and all that. But back then, they still had the requirements that you, if you were going to be a, an astronaut pilot and flying the space shuttle, you needed perfect vision. And if you were looking for the job I was looking for, which is called mission specialist, you didn't need perfect vision, but you still needed to see pretty well without the aid of glasses or contact lenses. And so that was my issue. And so what, 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 what was your vision? Uh, you know, the, the, I think the requirement at the time was uh, 2150 or 2200. My vision was more like 2350. That makes sense to you? Mm -hmm. So that was my that was my vision. It was pretty nearsighted. And so I've ne so what you did next, I've never heard of anyone else doing, but you basically managed to improve your vision without any surgery or anything. Like what exactly did did you do? Well, you know, uh, there's, there's, one, there's one thing I learned uh, that was a theme for us later as an astronaut that I think applied at that time, and that is you know, it's, it's okay to be upset or disappointed. Give yourself 30 seconds of regret and move on. You know? And so when I was, uh, when I was rejected with the vision problem, um, they, were, they did not accept any of those procedures, like you say. And I remember I, I got that news on a Friday because uh, we the interview took the whole week, and then on Friday they give you your exit information on the medical part of it. And they said, now, nah, you know, you're, you're DQ'd. We can't consider you any longer. Case closed. And over that weekend, I thought about what I could do. And, uh, 
the obvious answer, the only thing that was going to work was I had to figure out a way to see better. And uh, I spoke to, this is where I think reaching out and asking people is, uh, is a good idea. And I, 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 I called my optometrist that had seen me when I was a student up at MIT and asked, I told him what had happened. And, and he, he said, he, I think it was he that told me about this, uh, that there's some techniques that people had, some optometrists have tried, particularly with little kids, to help them with their eyesight when they're little. So if a child has, a small child has eye problems, whether it's, you know, problems with the muscle function or focusing or whatever, they can give them uh, uh, exercises to strengthen their eyes. And while they're still growing, sometimes this, this works. And it, it helps them uh, from avoiding serious eye problems, I guess, is what they're trying to avoid. But it also helps them with their acuity. And um, so I looked into this a little bit, and there was an a optometrist in Houston that had done this. And uh, I, I sought her out and met with her and, and asked her to help me. And she said, well, she had never worked with anyone older than like 10 years old before. But I begged her to help me, and she did. And what, what it is, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. Like if you're, looking, if you're looking at this book, James, right, right here in front of you, if you hold something up, your eyes focus right here, and it's, you're able to, able to read that, right? So if your eyes, and now you move this book back, these letters have gotten smaller, but my eyes can focus on that. Okay, so now... Sooner or later, I won't be able to see it any longer. But what these techniques did was sort of, uh, it was a way to kind of trick your brain almost to focus beyond what it was looking at. Do you follow what I'm saying? How, how, how so you try to, you, there was these things, where these, these kind of techniques where you would look at the object and kind of try to look beyond it, mm. and then the letter would come into focus. Mm. You know what I'm saying? As if you're, as if you're the... the it's too hard for your eyes to see it. So if you look beyond it, it's like trying to focus there, and therefore something closer comes in hmm. into uh, into focus. And so was that? And that worked. How long did it take before you went from twenty three fifty to below twenty two hundred? Yeah, it. Uh, you know, it. It. I. I did this for uh, for about six months, and then uh, retook an eye exam and provided that data to NASA, and and they said, okay, if we're going to interview again, you have to come in and pass the whole eye exam is the deal they made with me. Uh, so they, 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 you know, they saw that my vision had improved, but they're like, okay, well, you're going to need to come in and do our exam before we spend the money on you being another interviewee, because being an interviewee was, a, was kind of a, a big expense for the government to go through. So uh, it took about six months of that training for me to be able to pick up a couple more lines. Six months every day? Yeah, every day. How many hours a day? I don't know, whatever it took. <laughs> it gets yeah. to, uh, probably, probably about a, yeah, probably close to an hour a day. And so after the six months, was it like your vision was permanently improved, or is it just no? Lasting? It really, it almost was like just a trick that I could. And there are other things I did, like um, I got uh, the, the eyeglasses I wore. They gave me reduced power glasses because as your glass, as you have a, a prescription that allowed you to see really clearly, uh, it, it takes the strength. It, it leaves the, the the ability of your eyes to focus. But so they gave me a pair of glasses. I wore glasses that were reduced power. So it, it forced my eyes to work a little more. So I did that every day, and then I did these exercises. Um, and it wasn't like, it, it wasn't as if i walking around town, all of a sudden now I can see better. What it, what it enabled me to do was to see better during the eye exam. I would have to kind of, kind of concentrate. You know what I mean? It had, I had to concentrate on it to see it, to so, see what was going on. So no one had done this before. You were the first person over 10 years old. Yeah. But this was the one thing blocking you from being right. an astronaut, it wasn't like you could Google a solution back then to no. see what was out there. 
You kind of called around. You found the right, yeah. you know, thing. We get get help when you, you know, get someone who could help you. Yeah. Yeah. So and then you got accepted. What did it? I mean, I'm sure. I didn't care about the eye exam after that. She goes after once you're in, then there's things that they can waver, and vision is one of them. So. Ah, because like if an astronaut, let's say, loses their vision, like let's yeah, say, to get all, right? It's a, it, a lot of this stuff was at the time of selection, and once you're in, then you know things can happen and they'll work with you a little bit. So, yeah. uh, but I think actually, I think my eyes stayed within pretty much with you know when I was taking the exam, pretty much stayed within what they needed to pass the exam. Now it doesn't even matter. Now the exam is is much different. They've they've you know they've entered the 20th century with that, you know, 21st century I guess now, uh, and uh, and it's. You know, it's not as much of a it's not a requirement any longer. I think you still have they still have some requirement, but it's not like it was. So so, so part of it. So you get in and then there's the next hurdle, which is there's yeah. lots of astronauts and only few go to space. Well, all eventually are gonna go. Uh, once you once you're in a few a few of my classmates did not, but the majority of people, once you get in there, uh, you know, you're gonna get an opportunity to go to space. But you do have to get through the training program and uh, and then some people are going to do some things, some are going to do other things, but still, I mean, you're, you're, you want to, you know, it's, it's, it's not like it only, you know, we, we've selected 40 people and only two of you are going to get to go. It's like we've selected all of you and we expect all of you to be able to go. And as it turns out, sometimes that doesn't always work out. But, because but eventually they stop different programs and... Yeah, it was, so what happened for the, for the people in my, in my class didn't... Uh, that, that didn't go is mainly for medical reasons. Something did, so things can come up that can prevent you uh, from going. We had one, one, of our, one of my buddies had a, a, a serious neck problem that came up and prevented him from, from continuing. Another one, on really bad, ended up with a brain tumor and died so, uh, before, yeah, before he had a chance to go. So, uh, but I mean, it's, unless it was a, you know, a medical issue, you're, you're gonna probably make it through the training and go. You know, but, but, but speaking of that, like, and, and your friends. You might not be able to do everything. Not everyone, not everyone can spacewalk. Not everybody can do these. Those were. That's where it started to get like, oh well, not everybody can do this or that. So there's, you know, you're, what you would end up doing on the site. So getting a chance to go, just about everybody got a chance to go. There's also a little bit of a psychological component in the sense that probably in terms of probabilities, there is a higher than average probability that someone's going to die while on the job, right? As an extremely higher probability. Yeah. Right. No, it's a. Uh, it's pretty and pretty. Uh, you don't get. You can't get life insurance out. So you can get government life insurance, but you're not going. It is. You're not going to be able to get life. In, it is. It is pretty much an. an, an yeah. It's I mean, the most dangerous job. Uh, yeah. I think it's even more dangerous than the guys who are out catching a fish in the, on the show on the Discovery Channel <laughs> show. The deadliest catch. Oh, oh yeah. I, it's like one. Of, it's on like that sort of. It's a pretty well, dangerous job. It's horrible because not only that, people might watch it on TV, <laughs> like the right. space shuttle blowing up after. Yeah. So I mean, yes. Yeah, statistically speaking, you know that. So what we determined with the, with the space shuttle was that uh, the, at the end of the program, when they you know they recalculate odds of what your what your chances are, there's a one out of seventy five chance that you would have total loss. In other words, loss of spacecraft and an entire crew. That was one out of seventy five, which sounds like okay. The seventy four out of seventy five, you're going to be okay. But one out of seventy five for like complete destruction. Is pretty bad odds. Yeah, and because if there's if twenty space shuttles launched, yeah, it's probably like a fifty percent chance. Well, eventually, yeah, eventually you, we lost two of them, and uh, eventually, if you kept flying the space shuttle, you would end up losing another one. You'd end up losing all of them. You know, we had 
So you have we to be kind of a little crazy to want to go into space. Well, you have to. It's got to be meaningful. I, you know, I, it's funny. I'll do things. I'll do that. I was having a, my son now is 22 years old, and I saw him this last week. Uh, he lives he lives down in New Orleans, and I was uh, he was telling me he's going to go rock climbing in a couple days, a couple weekends. And I'm like, where are you rock climbing? Is it you know? Is it you're going to have ropes? Is it Teddy goes? No, no. It's just going to be bouldering. I go. Is it dangerous? And he's like, well, you know, they put a pad down. They try to spot. He like, didn't say. Sure it's okay. Well, what he, he said. He I'm didn't going, say, go, Dad. You walked in space. Well, he did. He said. He said. He looks at me. and He goes, "You put your, you put your, you, know, you put your butt on a rocket ship, and you're telling me to be careful." So, and I'm like, "Okay, fine." And I would not go bouldering. I wouldn't do that. I don't want to jump out of an airplane either. If it's working, if it's on fire, I'll think about it. But other than that, I'm staying inside. But a, a chance to go on a rocket, I'll go tomorrow. Yeah, I don't know why that is. There are certain things. I was having this conversation. I had similar conversations with um, a Navy SEAL in our office. Um, I watched one of those Navy SEAL movies. I think it was like Act of Valor, and it shows these guys doing this crazy stuff. And I, Chris Cassidy is this uh, uh, friend of mine who's an astronaut who's also an, is a Navy SEAL. And I was like, "What's this story? Are you guys out of your mind? Right? What, is that? That's, do you like doing that sort of stuff?" And he's like, "Do you like spacewalking?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "Well, that's the way we feel about doing what we're doing." And I had a conversation with a professional football player I met last week at a conference and asked him the same thing, like, because those guys get hit and beat up, you know, their targets, uh, and, uh, and I, I don't think I could do that, and, but I could do this. You know, there are certain, we all have things that we're willing to do that we feel okay about, and I feel okay about launching in a rocket ship. For me, that was my childhood dream. I think there's a purpose to that as well. I think what we, doing, what we were doing was important. And I actually think you should feel that passionate about what you're doing, that you're willing to risk a life. Whatever it is that you do, I think you should feel that. Pa I actually feel I would, be, I would be more upset if I didn't have anything that I was that passionate about. Hmm. But, I'll, but space is about it. I don't need any other kind of thrills. So. Well, well, so two questions. One is if, you're, if your son came to you now mm -hmm. and said, Dad, I'm thinking of volunteering for the first ship to Mars, what, what do you think? Uh, my advice for him would be make sure they're going to bring you back. I but think he, it would be great. No, we, I think that would be awesome. We don't know. We, no, <laughs> the legitimate people, they're, whatever that first trip to Mars is going to have, I'm sure it's going to be a round trip. So, uh, But no, if he wanted to do that or be an astronaut, I would say, yeah, if he wants to climb his rocks or that's, I mean, he likes the rock climbing thing and he's done some things I would, I would never do um, already in his, in his young life, um, I would say absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the second question is, for, you had the childhood dream you wanted to go into space. You wanted to be an astronaut. Many people, you know, they kind of go on the track, they, they, a different track. They go on college, job, you know, doing what they think they're supposed to do. And uh, then they end up unhappy and stuck. But they'd like to find out what their, what their passion is, what, what they would want to pursue more than anything. Is there any advice you would give if, they, if they're not in touch with that childhood dream at this point? How could they get closer to what they might love? Um, well, for, in, in my case, what, ha what happened to me is I had that, I, you know, I, I, that picture of me dressed up like an astronaut, I was six years old. And, and so probably in 1969, I would say the majority of six-year-old boys and girls who saw the moon walks wanted to grow up to be astronauts, right? That's what everyone wanted to do back then. And then they, the dreams sort of fade. But for me, I think it was I thought it was more than that. I, 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 those, those astronauts were my heroes. I thought what they were doing was the most important thing happening at that time and would be the most important thing that would ever happen for another several hundred years. That's the way I felt about it. I felt this is the one thing 
that people are going to learn about that's happening now, hundreds of years from now, the first time we truly left the planet and stepped on another place. And that was happening at six years, when I was six years old. And then reality kind of set in, sort of, where I thought that was impossible and for me to do it. And I went to college and studied engineering and was actually working, was working at IBM in Manhattan, you know, kind of one of those jobs you can, at that time, I don't, IBM, I know it's changed, but at that time it was a place you could stay for your whole life and people got that first job there and stayed there for their whole career and retired and sent their kids to college and did all that while they were working in that type of job at that type of company, which was great. But I, I, there was something missing sort of out of that for me. And what I noticed was where was, I, where was my attention drawn? You know, and it was drawn pretty much in two places and sort of still is. And that was uh, with baseball. I will read about baseball and pay attention to that. And I'll read about what's going on in space. And I just noticed for me, um, what, what, what kind of kicked me back into this, is I went to see the movie The Right Stuff, which came out when I was a senior in, in college. And it brought back all those dreams I had as a little boy. It was about the original seven astronauts. So then it was a, Tom Wolfe bought the book and I read the book. And, um, and I started to learn about what was going on now. And, I, and it, it, it now at that time, not now, but at, you know at that time in the '80s, which was the space shuttle, and I just got consumed by it again. So I think, I think it, for me, it was being honest with myself about what I really liked, and not worrying about that I couldn't do it, but just saying, what is it that you really love? If if, if I if you could do anything you want, you know, one was for me, it would be a professional baseball player or become an astronaut. And professional baseball player required skills I didn't have. And uh, Ash and I thought maybe I could figure out a way to do that. But let's even say professional baseball player. Again, the approach you took to being an astronaut didn't rely on you getting into outer space. You tried lots of different avenues of, okay, I'm going to get a PhD in robotics. I'm going to work at the Johnson Command Center. Uh, even with a baseball player, there's lots of ways to approach it without being a baseball player, if that becomes your passion. So there's always more mean, than like, one way. Uh, like for instance, you could be a writer about baseball. Oh you yeah, could, of course. You could right. be a debate. Yes. You could be that's right. an ESPN anchor right. for yeah, fantasy that's, sports. That's an interesting point too. I think for me, um, I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be the you know the the person actually doing it. I, I, and, I, and as a secondary uh, uh, occupation, I guess I would want to help people go that you know maybe be like a coach for astronauts, I guess, or an engineer that would help them. But yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I wanted to be the one. I wanted to experience it firsthand. There's a, there's a line from uh, from Jurassic Park where the guy says there are astronomers and astronauts, you know, and astronomers want to see things from a distance where astronauts want to get. I wanted to be out there, yeah, I, and I think I would want to be a player, or you know, I wanted I would want to be part of the game, and, I, and that's what I felt like as an astronaut. You're 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 actually the, you know you're like you're the you're the player, you're the pilot, you're the whatever you know host, uh, stand up comedian, whatever the relate. You're out there doing it, and the tip of the spear, yeah. You're the tip of the spear. So, so, so it's interesting. You got rejected three or four times for NASA. Was it three or four? Three rejections. Three, three rejections. Failed the qualifying exams at MIT. Yeah. Um, and then you get into space. You're going to fix the Hubble mm -hmm. telescope. And boom, something bad happens. <laughs> yeah, so this is what I think about that. Uh, I think that some multi-billion-dollar piece of equipment. The last time we're gonna potentially fix this. Yeah, that makes it worse now. <laughs> but uh, no, that was. Thank you. But when I say, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, maybe James, if I remember, if you or if you remind me. But I was gonna say was that I think that those trials you go through to get to where you're gonna go. It's not like oh, 
now I've got whatever, you know, I know the successful group of people, but it's not like, okay, now I got the job I wanted, so I'm going to relax. Like that, that, your reward is, guess what? Now you need to, you need to earn it. I think you earn things after you get them more. You know, mm. if you do it, I think that's really what you want to do. You don't say, oh, I got this cush job, now I'm going to sit on my butt and make everyone regret giving me the opportunity. No, you don't want to do that. You, you're going you're gonna to want to keep, want to deserve that, whatever that opportunity is, that trust of your client or, you know, the, 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 your, your business success or whatever it is that you have. Now, once you get to where you want to go, then it's, you know, then, then I think it's, it's, that's where the performance really happens. So going through all this trouble to become an astronaut and going over those hurdles to get to that job, that's no time to relax once you got it. That's actually where the work really starts. And I think that having the experience of going through those trials and going over those hurdles, that's what's needed to make you successful once you get the opportunity because it's not going to stop, problems aren't going to stop happening. And as an astronaut, you're constantly dealing with things that are going wrong all the time and trying to, you know, how do we figure it out? You know, and like Apollo 13, we were talking about earlier, that movie that a lot of people have seen, maybe I think a lot of people here probably have seen it, that depicts what, what happened in a real mission. You know, everyone had to keep at it. You couldn't give up. So I think having those qualities and having that experience of, hey, you know, I've been in this situation before. I might not have been in a space flight. Maybe it was taking an exam or was in a, in a business uh, situation or with developing a new program or whatever it is. You've failed before and you've been able to recover to get where you are. That's what's going to happen when, you, when you're in the position that you've dreamed about. You're still going to need that same those same principles, that same fortitude to keep going and be successful. Right, because you discussed, even when you were rejected uh, from NASA, you discussed how, okay, you give yourself 30 seconds to be disappointed, and then you start figuring out what's next. How can you keep moving towards your goal? So you're, you're out there spacewalking, trying to fix the Hubble telescope. What happened? Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. 
your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims. Dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. (music) 
So you're, you're out there spacewalking, trying to fix the Hubble telescope. What happened? Well, in my case, uh, what ha- we were trying to do the, what, what ended up being the most complicated, uh, we, we knew this when we were going, and we, that we, what we were going to try to do was the most complicated spacewalk ever. And uh, on the Hubble, we would, the, the way it was designed was to be serviced by astronauts, but it was modular such that you could uh, unhook power and, and data connectors, which were made to be used in a, with a big glove. So you're working in, it's kind of like working on a car trying to change the oil with boxing gloves, right? You can't really see very well. So you, everything is designed so you can do this with a gloved hand without seeing very well. So it's, it's like spinning a big connector and pulling it off, which is you can do with a big glove on your hand and then unloosening bolts with a power tool and then grabbing something and pulling it out and putting a replacement in. So like say we're gonna replace that air conditioner unit that's over there, you know, that's set up so it's we can just, a couple things on the outside to unhook, one screw to undo, it all comes out, we put the new one in, tie it down, hook it up and we're done, right? That's, that's the way the Hubble was designed. But if there's something wrong with that air conditioner inside, we're not gonna mess with it. We don't take things apart because it's mm. too risky, too complicated. Uh, well, we had an, uh, an instrument that needed that. It had a power. It didn't have a replacement to replace it with. It was a spectrograph that it, that was able to analyze the atmospheres of far off planets as one of the things it could do. So it was a great instrument, and it had a power supply failure inside. So we didn't have a replacement. We had to figure out a way to take it apart and replace this power supply. And we developed over 100 new tools, and we practiced for three or four years to get this thing done. And then the day comes to do this, and I'm outside. The guy who's leading the team, me and my buddy Mike Good, were out there doing it. And a very the easiest thing we were going to do was get a handrail, which was used to insert the instrument, no longer needed, but was in the way for our repair, to get that out of the way. We couldn't do the repair with this handrail sticking there. It was held on with four bolts. Three of the four bolts come out, and in the fourth one, I go ahead and strip. So it's not coming off. And... So I quickly realized what happened, what I did when I saw it was horrified, that the bolt's not coming out, the handle's not coming off, the power supply's not getting replaced. We're never going to know if there's life other other places in the universe, and I'm going to be blamed. So that's how quickly I went through that, that, yeah, that whole thing. So that's what happened, but we, we came up with a solution. How, how did you solve so it? What, what I, so what I was doing at this time was, one thing I learned as an astronaut was that in our training, that I kept thinking about while I was out there spacewalking that day was that no matter how bad things are, like no matter how hopeless a situation is, you need to remember that you can make it worse. Right? You know, we think that, you know, oh, this is really bad. Well, just start messing it up a little bit more and see what happens. You know, it's got anything else. All right, let's, let's contain the damage here. And so my first goal was not to make anything worse. I had messed up enough. So I kept that in mind and I tried to try to think as best I could, not make things worse work with the team, and the solution they came up with was to just rip that thing off, just to take that <laughs> That sounds like it's going to make it, it worse, potentially. Well, <laughs> it could. In fact, that's why I think I wouldn't think of it, and a lot of others didn't. Uh, it was an engineer in, the, in one of the back rooms that thought of this, that maybe I could do that. Because the reason we wouldn't is that when you yank that off, you can make things worse. Because number one is you're going to create debris. This is like breaking metal, right? And there's going to be shards of metal that are going to be thrown somewhere. One of them could be thrown at me, which would be bad because it could puncture my suit, or it can go into the telescope, which is bad, and render it useless. So that would be making it worse. So what they did was is they came up with the scheme that I would tape. We had tape outside. I didn't even know we had tape. They told me to get tape. I'm like, what? We had it stowed like in one of our contingency toolboxes. But I taped the bottom of the handrail and then gave, was able, that contained the debris. 
was able to yank it off and then we were able to continue. But once you yanked it off, how do you put it back on? We didn't need it back on. See, it was only needed, that handrail was only needed to insert the instrument because that instrument wasn't going anywhere. Okay. We had to, we had to open it up. So we didn't, have, we didn't have to worry about getting that thing back on. It was coming off and it came back. It's back on earth now, it was, yeah. which was the original plan, actually. It just came off with a different method. So, it was, what was, so now, what was planned. Yeah. So now, more recently, you've, you've done, you've been very good at being a, almost a spokesperson for the space industry. So you have your book, Spaceman. Um, you were just on uh, One Strange Rock on National Geographic uh, with Will Smith, um, either producing or narrating or... And... Uh, uh, He's the host. Will Smith's the host. Yeah, and, and the planets on uh, what channels? Science Channel. Science Channel. Yep. So you can tell how sophisticated I am on my television viewing. And, uh, and you do a lot of public speaking uh, to corporations about everything you've been through. You're a professor at... At Columbia, you've been you've been very active all around. So in a, in a weird way, you've you've created an entire media career. You've been on Neil deGrasse Tyson's various shows and podcasts and and, and so on. So um, you know, I guess one question I have is why not now? You you should write your own Neil deGrasse Tyson style book about space. Like do other stuff. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. All right. So that's idea number one. <laughs> yeah. Next idea sounds is, like a good idea. Next idea is. Uh, you should have a YouTube channel where I do like five-minute little clips about what it's like to be an astronaut. That's we we've I did some of that with NASA. We had a YouTube channel that might there's a lot of stuff with me on, or you know there's I don't know if it's any good, but there's a lot of stuff with me on it when I was back. At, okay, that sounds like a good idea. What else you got? That's two good ones. Uh, Maybe that's enough. To, yeah, that that could be enough. The YouTube channel I think could be big. Okay. You should be your own Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> My own Neil deGrasse yeah. Tyson. Okay, yeah. setting the bar high. I'll give, it, I'll give it a shot. But to be fair, you do host that show, The Planets. Yeah, I host. A, I, I host. I have two shows now uh, that uh, that are currently being shown. One is uh, the uh, the One Strange Rock show is on National Geographic Channel. Will Smith is the host, and they have. I'm one of eight astronauts. So there's eight of us who are participating in this program, and there's ten episodes. We just had episode seven last night. I was featured in that one. It was nice. They showed me around New York City talking about things here in New York. And uh, it's, a good, it's a really well done show. The other one, The Planets and Beyond, I think we, they've aired maybe half the episodes. Yeah, they're going to take a break. They're going to air the rest of them uh, starting in July. And that's on the science show. So we get that going. I've been on A Big Bang Theory a few times. That was fun. Yeah. Did myself. anyone see him on The Big Bang Theory? The Big Bang. I, go to, I go to Spatial right. Wallow. It's, yeah. So, uh, but it's yeah, it's really it's it's been it's been fun. It it really is fun. I think it's all um, for me. It's related to education and telling a story. And um, I, I like the teaching at Columbia. That's my main job. And I also like the work I do. I'm an advisor at the Intrepid Museum. So it's now it's you know for me, my, what it's, I was an educator. Interestingly enough, where I landed before I became an astronaut was at Georgia Tech as a professor, an engineering professor at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. And I remember thinking, after getting rejected three times from NASA, um, that all my education and my experiences gave, led me to a, a faculty position, a professorship at, at Georgia Tech, which is a cool school. And I, I think, I, I, I don't know if I was kidding myself, but I think I, was, I think I was truthful when I was thinking this way, that if I would have landed there and NASA kept rejecting me, if, uh, at least I, I landed somewhere that I, I thought was interesting and I could have a, a nice career and a good life there. And so... When, I, when NASA made the decision to, to hire me, um, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, that's, you know, you had that experience in the university. 
eventually, someday, your space flying is going to be over like it is for everybody eventually. And you're going to have to figure out something to do. And it's going to be, you can stay with NASA, you can go work into, into industry or do create something else to do. But I, I, I thought academics would be the right place well, for me. There's also private industry now. Look at, so, so where do you see things going? Obviously, there's like three or four companies that are, you know, racing to get to space in various ways. Like, do you think this is going to be moved completely into the private sector, and and how fast do you think I, I, things will I, I, I think this is the cool part. I think uh, I think this is really what's exciting about what's happening right now. I think we're at this very critical era time here. I don't know if it's critical or not, but a very interesting time that we're moving from an area where it was mainly government and uh, people trying to figure out what they could do in space travel, similar to the way it was over a hundred years ago with air travel. You know, the airplane was a fairly new invention back then. The, air, the military and the government were using it. Um, people were barnstorming and trying to entertain people with airplanes and doing crazy things with them. And then out of that grew a commercial airplane industry where we have an airplane taking off every second somewhere. Probably just here in the New York area. I mean, constantly there's airplanes going places and coming. And, and I think we're at that moment now. I think we're in that transition from... From like we were in airplanes when it was military and barnstorming, moving into a commercial industry. I think that there will always be a role for government to do things that businesses might not want to do. But I, I, I think that's the way the government should work in, in ways is kind of pave the way to create opportunities for the citizens, right? And and I think that our our in our space program, it's not just been the U.S., but we've worked with. We're currently in this with the International Space Station. It's with Russia and the countries of Europe and Japan and Canada and other countries working together. I think there's always going to be roles for governments to do research and to develop things that industry is not quite ready for. But I think what's exciting now is we have some of the greatest entrepreneurs, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and others that see space as the place that they want to leave their next mark. And I, the students I have at Columbia, they, they're very excited about as excited as I was as a little kid, they are that excited. My students now that are going into this, that want to work in the space program. It's not just NASA and the big companies anymore. It's also these entrepreneurial companies like SpaceX do, and Blue Origin. That do they you want see to go any of them as? With. Do you see any of them as kind of like pulling ahead in the race? I don't really, you know, I don't really see it. In my opinion, it's not really like a race. Like I think it was a the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union was pretty well was pretty clear. Who's going to get to the moon first? That was a no kidding race. You know, there was a lot of firsts back then. I don't see these companies necessarily being competitive with, I mean, they're, they're each of them are trying to get people into space in different ways, but I, it's, I think each one of them is a bit different about what they're, what they're trying to do. I think that it's not gonna be one's gonna win and the others are gonna lose. I think they're all gonna be winners. I do, because I, each, one, each one of them, there's something different about each one. And each one, from what I can tell, not that I, I'm an expert in what's going on in their business, but it seems to me that their business model for each one is a bit different. So I think they can coexist. It's not like you have to have you know one type of airplane or one type of airline. I think many of them can coexist. And I don't know, I, I, I don't know if they're necessarily going to be directly competitive. Maybe they will be in some areas, but I think overall the success of one of them or any one of them, if one of them meets with success first, I think that's going to help the others meet with success. I think it's also going to help NASA. I think Elon Musk sending his car into space yeah. a few months ago. I think that's great press for NASA. I think it's great press for the other companies too. It's pretty good for Elon Musk as well. But 
And I think it's good for anyone in the space program. So I don't necessarily think it's going to be like one's going to, you're going to only one of you are going to win, the rest are going to die out. I don't think that's the case. So um, I want to open up for a few questions. If anyone has, we have time for like two or three questions. Anybody have anything to ask, Mike? Yes. So what, what are you teaching at? What Columbia? am I teaching at Columbia? So I'm in the mechanical engineering department, and um, I uh, teach. I, I I do a few things there. I, my, my teaching load is teaching a, a, a course on space flight. It's called Introduction to Human Space Flight, and it's elective for primarily engineering students, but we have students from all over the university that take it. Uh, and I also teach a course for first year students um, on on rocket building, so they get to take that course with me. So are they, they like, so where are choose. they blowing off their rockets? Yeah, so launching rockets in New York City is problematic. It's not something people, people get panicky. Yeah. So we, uh, we, and they're not very large rockets. I mean, the, the point of the class is more to design, fabricate using 3D printing and laser printing and, you know, calculations. So the, you know, the launching is not like, we're trying to make it to the, you know, we're trying to make it to the moon with this one. So they're, lar they're smaller rocket engines that we use, and so they don't go very high, relatively speaking. But still, people don't like the idea of fire and that kind of thing in New York City. So we, uh, we, we go out to a park uh, that helps us out in, uh, on the other side of the bridge in upstate yeah, New York. Yeah, New so Jersey. Little, yeah, so we pick a day. Yeah, it's somewhere out there on the other side of the bridge where they have big open spaces. And, um, and you know, we're not going to hurt anybody. Uh, so we go out there. We're not, I don't think we'd hurt anybody here either, but people get nervous. So we don't want to make anybody nervous. So we do our launch day when, when the weather turns, when we trust it. We've had a couple cancellations, but we do it because of the weather this year, but we do it out on the other side of the river in upstate New York. So, uh, yes. Uh, so I, I'd like to know what your physical experience was in space. Like how, how did everything you were going through uh, affect you physically? So physically, um, your, uh, you, the, the, the biggest difference, and uh, this is for, uh, for when you're floating, when you're in, on the space station, or in our case on the shuttle orbiting, you're in zero gravity. So that's the biggest thing. If you're on the moon, there's a little bit of gravity there, like the guys are in. We haven't been to the moon in a very long time, since 1972, we haven't had people there. But it's a different, it's a different problem, or on Mars. But to travel there in zero gravity, or what we do now, having people in extended time in, in zero gravity, that is the, that, that, causes physical changes or and could have consequences if you don't countermeasure those things. So uh, things that happen, one thing that, you know, the, one of the first things that happens is your, your fluid in your body, which is put in, you know, kind of kept in place with, you, with your circulatory system, but also with gravity, right? Since there's no gravity, the fluid tends to pool higher in your body, so you're, you get a little stuffy, your head's big. I remember my first, my first like hour in space, like, wow, everyone's got a big head, you know? <laughs> And I was like, I wonder what mine looks like. And, you know, you're all puffy head. Uh, so you, you feel a little bit more congestion as a result of that. The body figures that out after a couple of days and starts to redistribute things where they're supposed to be. So that's, that's, it's interesting what the body can figure out. Um, your spine elongates when you're in space because your spine is kept in place. So you're an inch and a half taller when, when you're in space in the spine. And you're in your space suit, so you're going to go spacewalk in or sized. So that there, an inch and a half, compared to the size you wore, the measurements you had for the pool when you're practicing underwater. When we went, we go to space, we space it's a, you, they give you an extra inch and a half because they want you crushed inside of this thing. Um, but you lose all that. 
Although one of my crewmates wanted claimed that if you were that height for one day in your life, that was your height forever. <laughs> that's on his so, driver's license now. That's what he said he was going to do. So we measured him every day. Like, you know, a little kid, you know, if you have a little kid. We had to do it on the ground because you're floating around. We laid him on the ground and we had a little piece of duct tape that we would mark how tall he was. And then we measure it. So he updated his license by an inch and a half or so. <laughs> so. But you lose it when you come back. That all settles back in. So you're not that tall only in space. The, the biggest, there's other things. The, the, the biggest change for me, uh, or the, the thing you notice the most, is this, that your vestibular system, which knows, tells us when we're accelerating, when we're upside down, we're making it. It all works together. Everything, like we do this, we drive, we're able to drive a car, fly a plane, ride a bike, all because of our vestibular system. It all works in concert with our eyes and, uh, and our eye movements and our head movements. It, it all is tuned really well to work in one gravity. And uh, when you get to space, that's all floating. And so it's not working together. So your eyes are saying, wait, I'm moving around. And your, your inner ear is saying, no, you're not. You're perfectly still because it's not getting any input. And it leads to nausea, just like you would get. So, so you get that sick. So I, I barfed my first day in space. And uh, most people do. So when you barf, is it, yeah. is it, is it coming? Now we got James interested. Must we got the, <laughs> now yeah. I'm curious. Like, is, it, is the barf floating around? or? <laughs> no. See, well, you, know, you don't want that to happen. There are certain things you really don't want floating around a spaceship. Uh -huh. And barf is one of them. So, uh, and throwing up is part of your training. And not, not that they make you throw up, but is, you know, think about it. If you were going to space, you, you know, what would be on your mind? And so, like, I don't want to throw up over everything is really on your mind. So we had barf bags that, uh, emesis bags, which I guess emesis is a fancy word for barf. And uh, I had those ready to go because I knew this could happen to me. I had one in, I had a side pocket on my spaceship. I had one in my, in my, in my leg, I had a pocket in my leg you could put stuff in. So I had them ready. To, I had them, I think I even had one on my clipboard just in case. And they would fold up, but they were really good emesis bags. They were, they were cloth on the outside. They were all plastic on the inside. They had a shroud on them so you can like bury your face and then it would conform to your face. It had like, like a little kind of, like a twisty kind of thing so you could, you could, it would form to your face. You could shove your face in it, it would form a good seal. You could put your whole head in there and then it had a shroud that you could kind of throw over your head, more or less, and barf into this thing, right? So did and everybody then, got it, when you first got into space, did everybody sort of go to their private little corners and put on this bag? <laughs> Depending on the timing, which is not always controllable. Uh -huh. You know, sometimes, sometimes it would just, you know, uh, not that you might have a lot of experience with throwing up, I'm not saying <laughs> that. But, uh, but I guess apparently from my experience with it in space is it doesn't necessarily give you much warning and you try to fight it. Oh, no, I'm okay, no, I'm okay. Oh, no, I'm not okay. So you really want the thing handy and sometimes it happens, you know, like you hear it right behind you and you see the, you know, someone... So usually it's not like, oh, it's time for me to throw up in a minute. I'll, you know, it usually happens. You got to be ready for it at a moment's notice. So, yeah. All right. So Next that's question. Another, that's another thing. The bigger issue, just to, just so about the bigger issues though with, with with health, radiation protection. So because you're getting a lot of much more radiation up there, so you need ways to shield from that, and also muscle loss and bone loss from the zero gravity. So on space station, for example, the exercise period is two hours a day six days a week, and that's just to maintain a fitness level so you don't get bone and muscle loss. What's that? Do you stay younger? Does I don't, it, I don't does see it... the person asking that question. It's like, do you stay younger? It's like an angel is asking. <laughs> do you stay younger? No, unfortunately, eight. 
I think if you figured it out, like, because the, you're a little bit further away from the Earth, you know, time occurs like a microsecond differently over a couple of years or something. But no, you don't, it doesn't do any of that for you. You know, you, you, still, you still get older and, you know, you... Like there aren't health a, benefits to not you'd have to go, you'd have using to go the like, spine as much? What's that? There's not health benefits to not putting as much pressure on the spine? Uh, being in space? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you, you actually feel a little bit of, of pain in your back when it elongates, it feels kind of weird. It gives you some discomfort. But then after that, you're, you're fine. You have to be careful on, when you come home that when it all goes back together like that, that you, you're not allowed to lift anything heavy or do any, anything. Because we've had some guys pop a disc, you know, turning, doing something, lifting something. So that's all settling for a few days. And you're not allowed to drive a car or fly an airplane or do anything that takes that sort of hand-eye coordination because your vestibular system was messed up. But if you, I think if you were, if you were able to get like far away from the planet, light years away, go ahead, you're, you, then I think you'd see that time effect. But no fountain of youth. Where again is the, what's going on? What's that? How about this? What? One of the advantages of being the tip of the spear is you don't have to think about the mission. You're handed the mission and you have to execute it. Now, if you were the one creating the mission, mm -hmm. in your mind, what would be the mission you would want to create? Well, the, the tip of the spear thing, um, it's, that's one way you can look at it, that you're handed them. But really, uh, what we felt as astronauts, we were handed the task. But I, I felt like the, the, the thing that would make you a more effective astronaut was to be involved in what was going on. So the more you could know about what you were doing, the suggestions you could make, you were, you were given the objective of, what, hey, we're trying to go from here to there and do this. But then as astronauts, we had the unique opportunity to have that experience. But also, you know, in my case, I, had a, you know, I was able to contribute with my engineering background. And, and so I think you're a better tip at the end of, you're a better tip at the end of the spear if you also understand what's going on and a part of the planning and design and all that. As far as where I think we should go next, maybe that's what you're asking as well, is as I think we should go to, moon, to the moon next. I think this idea of Mars is kind of cool, but it's a little, right now it's beyond our grasp. Maybe Elon Musk can figure out a way to go there. But we've been talking about going to Mars for a long time. You know, we have bumper stickers and buttons and stuff. And uh, we, we, every astronaut thinks they're going to Mars when they get picked for the past few decades. My, my, my buddy Chell Lindgren is uh, a newer astronaut. He was picked in 09. And he flew a few years ago for the first time. was visiting, visiting here two years ago. Spoke up at Columbia and we were hanging out. And he's like, we're getting ready to pick this new group of astronauts that they just selected about six months ago, maybe almost a year now. But he, he said that, he goes, because can you believe it, Mass? They're saying they're going to send these people to Mars. You know, they told us we were going to Mars back in 09. You know, they told me I was going to Mars in 1997. And our patch, you get a class patch, you design your patch, and it has, it has the Earth and like a space shuttle and space station, and then the moon, and then Mars. We thought we were going everywhere, you know? And, and then you realize, no, nah, it's not going to, 20 years go by, like, what happened, you know? And, and we're saying it's still going to be 10 to 15 or 20 or whatever, and it, it's long enough out there where you don't, you know, it's not like we're saying 200 years from now. You know, we keep saying 10, 15, you know, so it's like, oh, okay. But we're also not saying like two or three because you'd remember that and say, hey, what happened? So like all these, all these years ago, like, where are we? When are we going tomorrow? 10, 15? So that never, the answer never changes and we never seem to be able to, to get there. I, I think that it's, it's a little bit too much for us right now. Not that we can't, but resource-wise, it's really expensive to get there and it takes a long time and... I would think that if we were to do that, it's probably going to be more, you know, get there, do it, come back, and then can we afford to go back and set something up? Whereas the moon, it's been 50 years since we've had people there almost. 
it's within our grasp. So it's not the easiest place to get to. It's 50 years. It's not like we're going there all the time. And if you look at exploration over the centuries, over 100 years ago, they were doing things like uh, who could be the first to Mount Everest, who was going to be the first to the North Pole or the South Pole. That, you know, just do it. And then they did it. I'm like, what do we do now? Well, let's go home. And that was what they did. And then 50 years later, they set up you know, the Antarctic Research Station. And now we have a presence there on a permanent basis. And I think that's just about time to go back to the moon now. And it's within our grasp. I think there's resources there that would make it uh, worthwhile to go. I think for tourism, I think people would like that. And I, and I think also as a research station, this is maybe where the governments could could uh, could cooperate. I, I think it'd be cool. Or as, again, as a launch, I think. In fact, I think. I mean, I don't have any. I haven't worked out any numbers, but uh, but I, I I would think that going there and and going to the moon would get us to Mars more quickly as a, as a launch platform, as you say. Plus, there are problems, there are issues with, with being on a surface of a planet for a, a longer period of time with reduced gravity. We have, we have a lot of data now of people in zero gravity. But when you're on a planetary surface, you've got to deal with rocks and sharp edges and dirt and how to protect from radiation in that way that you don't, it's different now. We're still even in low Earth orbit, we're somewhat protected by the Earth's magnetic field. You're not going to have that on, 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 on Mars or on the moon. Cosmic radiation. Cosmic radiation. So I think all those problems would be really well worked out on the moon. Transmission time delay for help. Right now in the space station, it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty quick. You have, Houston, we have a problem, you get an answer. Same thing from the moon, it may, maybe three seconds. From Mars, you're going to say, Houston, we have a problem. And about a half hour later, they'll say, oh, what was that? You know, you have to, so you got to be really independent there. You know, um, a day and a half away versus, I think the moon is where we should go. I think it was great that we went there when I was a little boy. But I think now it's to go back and stay and set something up where we could stay there. So I, if I was dreaming, that's where I would go. I think we're out of time. So, so one, uh, we're out of time, but one thing I want to mention that I forgot to mention, uh, Mike is also the first person, and he's on the stage right now, the first person to ever tweet from outer space. So what was that tweet? All right, so the first tweet from space. Uh, you know, I asked Neil Armstrong when I met him, when did he come up with the thing that he said on the moon? You know, did he think of it, or did he get a you know, speech writer? And he goes, you know, Mike, I didn't, I didn't think about it until, I, until after the landing. I'm like, really? He goes, because I figured it this way. If I didn't, we didn't land on a moon, there'd be no reason to say anything. So he got to the moon, and then he came up with the little thing that he, that he said. And I'll repeat that in a second here. I've got another part of the story. So I thought the same thing. So I got to space. I'm like, all right, I'm going to send this first tweet from space. And I wrote, all right, launch was awesome. We had just launched. Uh, launch was awesome. The, uh, I'm feeling great, enjoying the view. The adventure of a lifetime has begun. Poof, right? That goes out. All right, at the same time, my kids are both teenagers. Um, my son was 13, my daughter was 15, and, and think about it, if you have teenagers at home, or all of you at one time were teenagers, if you're a parent, one of your parents was in space, you'd probably be pretty happy about it. And my kids certainly were. Like, dad can't bother us, he's in space. So we had email, not only did we have Twitter, but we had email, right? So I'm sending, I'm sending email down there, you know, to the kids, and, you know, hey, and I'm not getting anything, and they're not, they're ignoring me, right? And I can see them, they're like, they're, they're not answering my email. I'm not hearing from these kids. Nothing. Okay. Saturday comes. We launch on a Monday. Saturday comes. Saturday Night Live, they make fun of me. Seth Meyers says, he gets on air, and you can probably, if you search, you'll probably find us online. He says something like, we have the first tweet from space. Mike Massimino, the first tweet from space. And here it is. Launch was awesome. And he goes on to say, in 40 years, we've gone from one small step for man, one giant leap to mankind. 
which is what Neil Armstrong came up with. Two, launch was awesome. <laughs> if we ever find a life in the universe, I assume this is how we'll be notified. And it shows the little Twitter thing and it says, geez, dudes, aliens, right? <laughs> so they make fun of me. I don't know what this is going on. We're trying to do spacewalks. I'm not paying attention to what's going on Saturday Night Live over the weekend. Monday comes. We're going to end on this story, okay? All right. Monday comes. Monday comes and my kids go to school, right? And see their kids, see their friends who have, who have watched Saturday Night Live, I, I assume. Uh, and I get email from these kids. From my, I'm like, oh, finally. You know, I figure, all right, the spacewalks are over. I did the thing with the handrail, broke it off, and they were the big hero. They're probably saying, Dad, you're the best. You know, you're a great, you really saved the day. Thank you for saving astronomy for the world. I'm expecting <laughs> to see something like this. Get a little respect around the house. This is what I get. Dad, they made fun of you on Saturday Night Live. All the kids at school loved it. Keep saying stupid stuff. <laughs> That's funny. That's all I got. Mike, thanks so much. Thanks, yeah. 